All right. Well, we do have a lot to, to celebrate what the Lord's doing over there. And uh, as I watch that video, I think, man, Bill Winton is such a trainer. He knows how to train people for ministry. He's doing it over there. And so if you want to talk to him about India, he's around here uh, this morning. So he'd love to talk to you about that trip. But again, yeah, when I think about Bill Winton, I think, man, he's such a trainer. And I know that to be true in my own life because my, uh, my journey here at CFC started with really being trained under uh, Bill Winton. He's given me a heart for ministry, a heart for teaching the word. I started here, if you're new to CFC or if you don't know me, I started as an intern uh, about 10 or 11 years ago. And from there just uh, grew a, a love for teaching the word and for, for ministry. So really grateful uh, for him and, and how the Lord's using um, him. So in our, in our middle school ministry and our missions and so really grateful for that. So, well, uh, man, there is a lot going on here. Uh, there's a lot going on in our high school ministry. Um, and so, by the way, yeah, I'm, I'm Jonathan Monk, high school pastor. I've been here for about uh, four and a half years. And I want to show a picture real quick for you of our retreat. We went on a winter retreat called Revive. It's like one of the two big retreats that we do a year. So here's a picture real quick. Uh, we took about 100 students up to Asheville, North Carolina. So we see one of our leaders right here, Heather Randalls, right? So really grateful for our time. Um, away, we had a speaker named Matt Dinsky, one of my friends, and he taught through the life of Peter. Uh, man, we had a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things that, by the way, I'm realizing about these retreats that uh, after, like at every retreat, we have a lot of fun, but we never sleep a lot. I feel like I'm sleeping less and less, like three hours a night. In fact, on the, on the last night, uh, some students put rocks in my pillow. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was like a real blessing to, to go to bed on the... <laughs> on the last night, so, uh, but it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We saw the Lord work in some amazing ways. Uh, you guys prayed for our time, do you remember that? Like, yeah, okay, like two weeks ago, uh, you guys prayed, uh, Matt Collins led us in a time of prayer that we'd see students come to know Christ, or that was one of the things you prayed for, and we had two students come to know Christ. So one Saturday night, one Sunday night, yeah. Um, on, um, on Sunday night, uh, the last night, a young man, he's a sophomore, he was on the left-hand side of the room. He stood up, wanted to accept Christ, recognized that he had a need for a savior, wanted to put his trust in Jesus, and he did that. And then after uh, we prayed for him, uh, he came up on the stage right next to me, and he had read Philippians 1-2, which says, because um, he had just randomly turned to this verse, and I said, hey, man, what verse are you reading? He's like, I just read grace and peace in and, um, and Philippians. And so I said, man, what you're reading is now true for you. You have grace and peace in Christ. And it was just this cool moment to read it, uh, to read that verse out. And then Todd Likens, who was just up here doing worship, let us in um, Amazing Grace, and so this young man stood right next to me on my left as we stood up there and sang Amazing Grace, and so it was like, it was, it was awesome. I think one of my favorite moments that I remember is as this young man is worshiping, he, he had his hands out like this, and he's, he's a pretty shy guy, and he's had a big smile on his face in front of everybody, like worshiping Jesus, like that was cool to sing a young, to hear a young man put his trust in Jesus and then sing Amazing Grace. My chains have fell off. My heart has been set free, so very encouraging to, to see what the Lord did two weeks ago. Yeah. And then last week, we were back. So we obviously were out the, the, the Sunday prior, our youth ministry, our high school ministry. But we were back last week. And it was good to be back last Sunday because do you remember? Uh, Doug finished Revelation. We had been, in sun, been there for about seven or eight weeks, uh, future things. And so I remember as Doug taught last week, kind of the end of his message was, come Lord Jesus quickly. Do you remember that? And so it was a great word that's been on my heart throughout the week. And so uh, as I had been you know, talking with Doug a few weeks ago, it's like, how do you follow up a series on Revelation, right? <laughs> and we, already know, we already know the end, the, the, the hope that we have. It's such an encouraging series. And so as I talked with Doug several weeks ago, I thought, you know what? 
I think here's my role this morning after Revelation. I think my role is this. I think my role this morning is to encourage you. And I want to encourage you in light of what we know of what's true in Revelation, in light of what is to come. We know what the future holds. We have a hope, man. Tomorrow is going to be unbelievable, but today is still hard, right? And so, so Doug said, just go, just go encourage him. And so I want to encourage you this morning. That's what's, what's on my heart. And um, I want to encourage you from what I think is one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of encouraging passages in Scripture, so I know I'm making a big statement there. Um, but I think one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture is Romans 8. And so that's where I want to take us this morning. We're going to look at the very end of it. So you can go ahead and turn there uh, to Romans 8. Um, and we'll look at the few verses towards the end. And as you're turning there, uh, a few reasons why I think we need encouragement, some, which are pretty obvious, but I think, I think on a Sunday morning coming together as a body, it's good to be encouraged, or we need encouragement because you could have had a week where you were just, you're just overwhelmed by life circumstances. Maybe you're discouraged or you're distracted. So I think you need encouragement this morning. Maybe you're walking in this morning and you're overwhelmed by the weight of your own sin or, or regrets that you've been replaying to yourself. And so this morning you need an encouragement from, from Romans 8. Uh, maybe you've had a week where it feels like everybody is against you. I think you need, I think you need encouragement this morning. Or, or maybe you have in the last, like you're in a season where you just have some doubts, doubts about the gospel, doubts about, uh, man, does God really still love me? Is God going to continue to love me? And so I think from Romans 8, you need encouragement um, this morning. I was talking with a friend this past week, and they shared with me that during a really hard season of their life, this person loves Jesus, they still love Jesus, that they took Romans 8 and they basically, they basically read Romans chapter 8 every day for the entire summer with this question in mind. And their question was, is the gospel true? And he's like, I know the gospel's true for everybody else, but, but is it true for me? And they read Romans 8 again and again, day after day, and obviously they came to the conclusion that the gospel is true. And I think they, they walked away encouraged. Um, I personally, I, I love Romans chapter 8. Like, this may kind of sound silly, but if I could marry a chapter of the Bible, like, it, it may be Romans chapter 8. I I, I, love, I love this chapter. I, I came to love this chapter while I was in school at CIU uh, several years ago. If you don't know my story, I, I grew up in a Christian home, but I grew up very far from the Lord. Like I was a kid that was in church a lot, but was sitting in the back row reading a sports page while the guy was preaching a sermon. I had very little interest in spiritual things, but God, by his grace, at the age of 21, drew me to himself. I was convinced that I needed a savior. And then thereafter, I found myself at a Bible college because I wanted to study the Bible. I was in my early 20s. And while I was there at CIU, God put some solid um, friends around, around me, and, and one of them had the idea. They said, hey, let's memorize Romans chapter 8. And so we began to, um, to laminate it, and I've had this thing, and I've kept this with me for, for 12 years now. And uh, sometimes I misplace it, but this is like Romans chapter 8, and I keep it close to me because this has been a chapter that has got me through some really dark, discouraging times. It's, again, it's, it's a passage that has encouraged me. And as I look back to those days when I began to memorize this chapter with friends, I thought it might be like a seasonal thing, like a chapter that would just be close to me during college, but I didn't quite realize until now that this chapter would be a chapter that would really lay a foundation for the rest of my life, my identity in Christ. It would be a chapter that would lay a foundation for my marriage, for my ministry. I mean, it's, again, it's a chapter that I come back to a lot. So before we go into Romans 8, just a, a, a quick story here. I want to show you a picture of 
Um, so Romans chapter eight is where we're headed. So here's a picture of my wife, Allison, and then our daughter, uh, Lydia. We have three kids, Lydia, Chloe, Asher. Lydia's the oldest, um, and she's seven. And this is a picture at SeaWorld. We've gotten passes the last couple years, and uh, SeaWorld has become one of the favorite, pla- like our favorite places uh, that we take um, Lydia. And uh, I remember the first time that we took Lydia to SeaWorld. This was a couple years ago. We walked into SeaWorld. She was so excited. And we get to the big, uh, the, the orca show where the whale jumps up out of the water and then jumps back in the water and the music's going crazy. And Lydia, when she saw that happen, her jaw dropped and she was like, wow, a big whale like jumping up out of the water and then jumping back in the water. She thought it was the coolest thing. And then I thought, okay, that, that was like a first time thing. Like she won't have that same reaction when we go back. And so a few months later, we go back second time. The show is exactly the same. The music is the same. Like I even know some of the songs. The whale jumps up at the right time, you know, just like last time. And then Lydia's jaw drops and she's excited. Third time, and it, and it continues. And I have loved just watching life through the eyes of a seven-year-old. And one of the things I've noticed after we've been to SeaWorld, I don't know, maybe like 10 times now, that there's something I've observed about Lydia, that every time we walk into SeaWorld, though it's quite familiar to her, she walks in with anticipation that something's gonna happen. It's gonna be fun, like it's gonna be cool, she's excited. And then when we walk out of SeaWorld and we get in the parking lot and we go home, she always says these words, something like this, hey, thank you, Dad. And uh, she walks away with with, with gratitude. And um, I share that story for for this reason, as we connect here to Romans 8, is that, um, I've been to Romans more times than Lydia has been to SeaWorld. And I just told you, I've memorized this passage. I'm familiar with this passage, but if I'm honest with you, it is easy to come to Romans chapter eight and not really be anticipating, anticipating that God's gonna do something. And sometimes it's easy to, to, to spend time in Romans eight and yet not walk away with gratitude. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we come to this chapter that maybe many of us in this room are familiar with that we would come in with anticipation, anticipation that God's gonna do something. And then we would walk away from Romans like Lydia walks away from SeaWorld with words like, I mean, cause you're gonna walk out of here in like 40 minutes and you're gonna go about your Sunday and you're gonna begin thinking about Monday. Sometimes some of you are already thinking about work tomorrow. But let's leave this morning with, with gratitude um, for what we see in this chapter. And so I think if that's gonna happen, if encouragement's gonna take place this morning, uh, I think, I, don't, I know of no other thing really to do is just to pause and pray. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into this chapter. You know, Father, as I just said, I confess to you, Lord, I am familiar with this chapter. Um, but I, I believe that you're not finished with this chapter in my life, and you're not finished teaching us this, this great chapter. And so, Lord, as we come to Romans chapter 8, I know that uh, for some of us, we've been here a lot and we're quite familiar with it, but we need you to be our teacher. And Lord, I also recognize that some of us in this room, they have, like, maybe they haven't been to Romans 8 in a little while, but when they come back here, would you you teach them? And Lord, maybe there's someone here who's never been to Romans 8, and this is their first time. Lord, I pray that they might come to love you as they see the sweet truths in this passage. Lord, I'm asking that you would, as we look at these words, that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things out of your word. Uh, and would we leave this morning thinking, of, thinking more about you? Uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read it in a second. Uh, which, by the way, if, um, if you're not as familiar with Romans or Paul, so written by Paul, he's writing to Christians in Rome. He writes this on his uh, third missionary journey from Corinth. 
He's writing to believers, and uh, I think he's, he's writing to believers who we know are, who are being persecuted for their faith, who most likely, most people think that the believers who received this letter in Rome would be killed for their faith probably about 10 years after receiving this letter. And Paul, I think, is writing to encourage them, to encourage them to persevere. And we see here that one of the ways I think he will encourage them is with the gospel. Many of you may know that famous verse in Romans 1.16 where he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But then right before that in Romans 1.15, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. So people who, who are already believers, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And that's what he does in the next few chapters in Romans. He lays out the gospel beautifully. The first few chapters are talking about how uh, not just the Gentiles, but, but, but the Jews, everybody is guilty before God. They have all gone their own way. And then he gets into the end of the chapter three, he talks about salvation. And then he moves into chapter five, six, seven, and eight, talking about sanctification, how we become more like Christ. And then at the very end of chapter eight, he's gonna get to a, a new section where he's talking about God's sovereignty in chapter nine. And I think at the very end of this chapter, he has four questions that I want us to look at this morning. And I think these four questions are really encouraging. And so as we hear this, this verse in a second, what then shall we say to these things? I think that these things refer to all that he has been saying in, in these first eight chapters. And as we come to chapter eight, he says words that you know, we just sang about. There is therefore now no condemnation. I've been set free from the spirit of slavery. Uh, I can walk in the spirit. I have a spirit of adoption. Um, I, the sufferings now don't compare with the glory that is to be revealed to me. He, he says the spirit is praying for me. God's working all things for good. And then I think he gets to this climactic ending of chapter eight and he's like, so I got some questions. And the rhetorical questions that I think are, in, are, are really designed to encourage us to repeat out loud um, what is true. And so uh, let's just read the passage. I know it's been a, a very long-winded introduction, but let's just let's, let's read the passage now. I'll start in verse 31, and then let's just let, let the passage sink in. I'll go to verse 39. But here's when I read, here's what I want you to be thinking about. I want you to be thinking this. What questions is he asking? Uh, there's four. And then I want you also to be thinking, do you, do you ask these questions? Or have you asked these questions this week? All right, so here we go. Paul says this, what then shall we say to these things? So what he has already said in first eight chapters. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him, um, delivered him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. All right, so we seeing some questions? Okay, that's good, all right. Uh, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or uh, peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced, love those words by the way, he's confident, I'm sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, isn't that a great passage? Okay, yeah, I think so. So four questions, did you see the first question? The first question was in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So if you're taking notes, here's really the first question. The first question is this, who is against you? Who is against you? And 
as you see this question up on the screen, is there a particular person that, that may come to mind? Is this a question that you've asked in the last week or ever, or ever wrestled with? I think you may say, who is against you? You may say, my coworker is against me. Or maybe your neighbors, uh, you feel like your neighbors are against you. Or a family member. Or some of you may say, my children are against me. People will be against us. I mean, this was true for Paul. In Acts chapter 13 and 14 on his first missionary journey, as he's sharing the gospel, I mean, they wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. So he had people against him, and I think we will have people against us. We know that Satan, our, he's our adversary. He hates us. He hates CFC. He hates you. He is against us. The unbelieving world is against us. The flesh wages war against the spirit. And often, here's what's been hard for me, is that circumstances can sometimes appear to be against us. And I think sometimes for me is that when I only look at my circumstances, I could come to the conclusion, well, God must be against me. And I think here's what's one of the things that Satan wants us to believe or think. And this is a lie. And I think what I wanna show you with these four questions is that we often answer them wrongly when we look to ourselves or to our circumstances. And so I think Satan wants us to believe something like this, that circumstances must reveal that God is against me. And maybe your difficult circumstance this morning is a chronic illness. And so as a result of that, you may be thinking, man, God is, God is against me. Or maybe you got a phone call this past week where a family member is being uh, taken into hospice or hospice is stepping into this situation. That, that's hard. That can be kind of difficult and, uh, for a family to kind of take in. Maybe uh, it's the, the death of a loved one or the, or the loss of a job or even trying to find a job and it's like, man, why so long? Is God, is God against me? Or there's this long-standing conflict with you and a, another coworker and as you go to work tomorrow and you've been going to work, you're like, man, this person's against me. Is, is God against me? And I think, I think what Satan wants to do is to get us to think or, or to kind of speak lies to us like this. How could God possibly be for you with that circumstance going on in your life. God, God, he, he, he must be against you. And I think it's been easy for me to think that God is for me when life is great, but when life is hard, he must be against me. But I think what Paul's doing here is he's asking questions, but these questions lead to, to right answers. Answers that we say aloud that, is, that, 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 that are true. And so here, here's the right answer. And I, I didn't put the full verse in the question, but what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who could be against us? There's truth here, and the truth that we declare is that God is, is for me. That God is for me, and those against me don't compare to the one who is for me. And so, again, who's Paul talking to? Clarify here, this is good. He's talking to believers, and he's basically saying, if you're in Christ, God is for you. And God is for you, and God is for you, and God is for you if you've trusted in Christ. Easy to come on a Sunday morning but, and, and just think past this, but let this truth sink in. God is, God is for you. David knew this in the Psalm, Psalm 56, this I know that God is for me. And you may think, yeah, but you don't understand this person I work with, or you don't understand this family member and this situation that we have going on. And I think what Paul's doing with Romans 8 is he is saying, hey, let me remind you and let me tell you about the one who is for you. He's for you, not, not, not against you. 
I know that in my own life there's been situations where I have felt like people were against me, or, or they really were against me. Like when I uh, was teaching the Bible at a public school in North Carolina, this was right out of college, and um, of course, teaching the Bible in a public school, that may shock you, but that's what I did for five years, and it was allowed in this small county in North Carolina, but there are many people who are not a fan of it. And so I remember teaching the Bible five days a week and I felt like the administration was against me. I thought there were some teachers that were against me, some students who were in my class but didn't wanna be in the class. So there were some oppositions that I faced and there was just a, it was a hard, lonely, discouraging year where I felt like people were against me. And then to my surprise one day, I got a phone call from the pastor of the church across the street who was very supportive of having Bible in the public schools. And he called me one day and he said, hey, Jonathan, I just want you to know, we are for you. It was a very encouraging conversation. Hey, he's like, Jonathan, do you need Bibles? Do you need us to pray? What do you need us to pray? Like, do, do you want a, one of our pastors to come into the classroom with you? Like, what, what do you, you want us to teach for you? Like, what, what, what do you need? We'll, we'll do it. And I think because of who those words came from, that mattered to hear that. Hey, I'm for you. And his words, he demonstrated over the next few years. And, and as Allison moved to North Carolina, like just, they were very supportive. They were for us. And I think the great truth here in Romans 8, or one of the great truths in Romans 8 is God, is God is for me. God is for me, he's not against me. And those against me don't compare to him who is for me. And they don't compare to him who is for me because what can they ultimately do if God is for me? They can't prevail. Now obviously as we walk through this passage, can people really do things against us? Well of course they can. They can bring charges against us and we'll get to that in just a second. But he is for me. And then I love what Paul does next in the next verse. He shows how God is for me. And how, how does he show that God is for us? In verse 32, he says this. He says, if you have any question or if you're really wondering, like, how do I know that God is for me? Look what he says. He who did not spare, this is his reasoning of, this is how you know God's for you. He's basically saying, you need to look at the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul is saying, hey, if he gave you his son, if he's given you his son, he's gonna give you all things. I mean, think about what he's done. He's, he's given you everything and given you his son. And I remember uh, at chapel at CIU, uh, where I was a student, the first time I heard someone teach this verse, it was this guy, Dr. Murray, and he was teaching only this verse, and his point of the sermon that day for us college students was, he wanted us to reason from the greater to the lesser. And he says, hey, students, if, if God's done the big thing and given you his son, then he'll do the small thing. He'll take care of you. But I remember on this chapel, like on this day, I was having a hard time focusing because my car had just broken down, my nice little 94 Honda Civic. I love this car. I had like 300,000 miles on it. I was going to drive it until I had 500,000 miles on it. And it broke down. And I, I was told, your car's done. Like, don't, it's not worth fixing it. So I'm sitting in chapel with no car, discouraged, distracted by that. And, and, and he's, he's telling me, hey, God's giving you a son. He's gonna give you everything. I was like, man, I need a car. Walk, walk, out, of, walk out of chapel. To my like, surprise, a couple hours later, someone calls me and says, hey, I heard you need a car. I'm gonna give you our car. It wasn't a brand new car, but it was a car. It was actually a better car than I had. So now I went from a Honda Civic to a Ford Explorer. So that was pretty nice. And I remember driving this Explorer around that day, thinking back to Romans 8.32 and says, man, this is like my favorite verse now. Like this is my life verse. Like I'm gonna get a tattoo of this verse. Like he's given me a son, he's now given me a car. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna get a girlfriend now. And then I got, then I started dating Allison and then she broke up with me. And then I was like, wait a second. 
all things. God, what are you doing? I begin to kind of like question this verse. Like, you said you've given me your son, you're gonna give me everything. I need a girlfriend. I had one, now I don't have one. And I think what I realized there is, and there's a truth here, is that yes, God's gonna take care of us. But I think sometimes it's easy to think all things, like he's just gonna give me all that I want. That's not what he's saying. So I've had to pause. I, I think I taught this passage wrong for, for several years, like a prosperity gospel, name it and claim it or whatever. But I think what he, I think what Paul is saying here, all, I had to ask myself the question, all things towards what? Yeah, not, not all things towards a car or not all things towards a relationship, but if he's given me his son, he's gonna give me all things towards what? And I think I, if I'm in verse 32, I just read my Bible backwards. I go to verse 29, all things towards becoming more like him. He is, his desire for me is to conform me to the image of his son. In other words, that in the difficult circumstance that I'm in and that you're in, his promise to me and his promise to you is he's gonna give me all things. A verse that we quote a lot around here at CFC is 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given me everything that I need for life and for godliness. And so as you think about the difficult circumstance that you're in and you feel like giving up and it's hard for you to get out of bed, that's hard. God's not against you. God is for you. How do I know that he's for me? He's given me a son. If he's given me a son, uh, if he started my salvation, he's gonna complete it. He's gonna follow through and he's gonna strengthen me. He's gonna give me all that I need. That's a great truth. All right, next question. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God's elect, those whom uh, are believers here, you know, that we didn't choose him, but he chose us. He drew us to himself. And so this second question, who shall bring a charge against you? Who shall bring a charge against the, us as believers? And so as you think about this question, how would you answer this? Like if we were in a small group, how, what would your initial reaction be to this question? Who shall bring a charge against you? I think there's three different ways we can answer this. We could say Satan, ourselves, or maybe others will bring charges, bring accusations against us. We know Satan is the accuser. Revelation 12:10 says this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser. You see that? That's who he is. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down he who accuses them before our God day and night. So we know Satan comes and he accuses us. And what I, what, I, what I think here is he takes sin that we've confessed, that we've been forgiven of, that Christ died for, and then he brings it up. He brings it up to us and he comes and wants us to believe lies like we weren't forgiven. And I think charges by Satan come to us maybe like this. Hey, how could you talk to your wife or your husband like that? It's like, I've, I've confessed that. I've that's been paid for by the blood of Christ, and yet Satan the accuser comes, and I think he wants me to believe a lie. And I think he wants me to believe a lie like this, that because of my sin, accusations will be brought against me, and I have no defense. And, and yet, to clarify here, in some ways you may be like, but this is true. It's true apart from Christ. Like, yes, apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross, you and I, we have no defense. And I think Satan wants to bring up past sin to accuse us. Like, how could you look, at you look at that on your phone? Or how could you talk to your kids like that? Or how could you gossip like that? You're such a failure. Nobody loves you. You're a loser. You're an idiot. You're never gonna change. I think Satan comes and he is the accuser. 
You're so fake. You ever wrestled with that before? You ever felt like the accuser came at you like that? Satan brings true accusations that have been forgiven to, I think, discourage us. But I think sometimes we do Satan's job for, a, for him, and instead of being accused by him, we actually accuse ourselves. So when I look at this question, who shall bring a charge against me? Here's how sometimes I would answer this. Who shall bring a charge against me? Me. And we sometimes, it's just from my own experience, sometimes I think we talk to ourselves like we would never want anybody else to talk to us. And if, 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 if so, like we would get mad. But sometimes we beat ourselves up and we bring up past sin that Christ has forgiven us. And I think this is, this is something that I think we all can, can struggle with, saying things to ourselves like, man, you're such a failure, and totally discounting and not bringing to mind the work of what Christ has done. I remember one time, this was about a year ago, I went to lunch with Doug at Outback, and I was just struggling during this particular season, and I shared with him some of my thoughts, and he helped me see that the real problem was in my own thinking, that I was telling myself lies and then believing those lies, and basically, they were related to past sin that I had confessed, past sin against people, but still bringing those things up to mind. And, and, and Doug said to me, I remember he said, uh, I wrote this down in my journal, he said, you need to talk back to yourself with truth. I, I share this story just to encourage you that if, if I do that, how many of people in this room do that? That you bring charges against yourself. Charges like, man, you're such a failure, but I think we wanna replay what is true. And Paul here gives us the truth to declare, right? So who shall bring a charge against me? Yeah, we may bring charge against ourselves, but the truth is that I think we repeat to ourselves is God is the one who justifies. So God justifies me. So really, who, who can bring a charge against me? Nobody. Why? Because God has justified me. If you're unfamiliar with that word, to be justified is he's saying you are innocent is to be declared righteous. Uh, righteous with him, um, or it's right standing before him, not through anything that we've done, but through what he has done for us on the cross. And I think I've learned that we go wrong when we try to refute accusations with words like, because I. I think the only response to accusations is to say words like, because he. Because he. Because he what? Because he justified me that he now has declared me not guilty. There, there's a verdict and it's final. I was guilty, but now I am not guilty through what Christ did for me on the cross. And no one really can accuse me because God has justified me. I think about the story in Luke chapter 18 where there's the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Some of you may know the story. And the Pharisee is very self-righteous and he's praying, uh, but his prayer is about himself and what he hasn't done. And he's comparing himself to the tax collector. And then the tax collector basically prays this prayer. He's beating his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me. In other words, God, would you propitiate me? Would you satisfy the wrath I deserve? And his prayer was humble and he recognized that he was a sinner in need of a savior. And uh, Jesus as Jesus tells that parable right at the very end, it says that the tax collector went home justified justified. He was declared innocent. Obviously, the, the, work on the, Christ, the work of Christ on the cross hadn't happened yet, but he was justified. And because you and I have been justified, we have an advocate with the Father. First John says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the propitiation. He's the satisfaction, if you will. He comes and does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And as I, like preparing to teach this, I have to come back to this. I've been 
justified. I've been declared righteous. I'm not guilty. And so I just want to like, ask you this morning as we, before we move on, it, like, is this how you see yourself this morning? Not guilty. Not guilty. So let me try to maybe connect this before we move on to the third question. Like, you know that situation where maybe this past week where you got angry and you sinned against someone? Yeah, you were guilty of that. As you've confessed that to the Lord, here's what's true of you. We're guilty, but now you're not guilty. You know that situation where you got angry with someone and maybe it's coming to mind right now as we're talking? You were guilty, but now not guilty. Do you see how this is encouraging? To be like, man, I am... I was once guilty, but my greatest problem has been solved. I'm not guilty. I think as I, you know, as I think back to that conversation with Doug, I, I think it's easy for maybe to know I'm not guilty, but then to live as if I'm guilty. Do you ever do that? Like it's easy for me to preach this from a stage, but this has to be worked out personally, like tomorrow and, and the coming days. You know what I'm saying? Like, I need to remind myself I'm, I'm justified, been declared righteous. All right, third question. Who is the one who condemns? So third question, who is to condemn? And when I first read this, I'm like, wait, didn't he, like, didn't he just say this? Isn't this similar to charge? I think to, to bring a charge is to bring an accusation. To condemn is like, it's final. Uh, it's to pronounce like judgment on somebody. And I think here's the, the lie or maybe where we answer this question wrongly is, uh, you know, Satan wants us to think God may have forgiven me of my past sin, but he keeps a record and he'll make me pay one day. Think about if you know anything of, about the story of Paul, Paul in Acts chapter six, before his conversion, Paul who writes this, he handed over and had Stephen condemned. And you think about the charges or, or how Satan would could have wanted uh, Paul to think that he was condemned. Hey, you had Stephen condemned, and yeah, you may think you're forgiven now, Paul, but one day you will be condemned, Paul. And, 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 and the words here is, no one can bring any con condemnation against me. Or we know that it says this in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And there may be someone in your life who you feel like, man, they're condemning me, but no one has the power to, to ultimately to condemn you. This is the great, I think, hope of the gospel. And the truth is, where Paul takes us is, there's no condemnation. Jesus was con condemned sin in the flesh. And then here's the truth he gets to in verse 34. Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So the truth, when Satan wants to condemn us, or as 1 John says, you know, sometimes we condemn ourselves. And so what's the truth that we come back to that's encouraging this morning? It's this, that Christ died. And not only did he die, he, was, he rose, he's seated, and he is interceding for me. Now you may say, okay, that's great. It's great that, uh, to hear that Christ died and that he rose, and that's all in the past. And maybe this morning you're like, but I need him now. Like you're about to step into a hard conversation or there's a circumstance going on in your life and you're like, I understand that Christ died and he was raised, but that's all in the past. And you're like, I need him like now, like I need him right now, right? And you may be doing like, like, like wondering like, what is Jesus doing? Like, I, I, cause I don't feel like he's here. Like I need him right now. Like, what is he doing all day? 
You know, as, I, as I've been a youth pastor for four and a half years now, a common question I get by students is, hey, I know you're a youth pastor, but like, what do you do all day? Like, like I'm just like hanging out in my office, like reading my Bible. I mean, I do read my Bible, but there's more I'm doing. Like, what, like, what do you actually do all day? And if we take this to Jesus, like, what is Jesus doing all day? You ever wonder that? What is he doing? Oh, I don't know, just interceding for us, praying for us, praying for those who have obtained a righteousness that don't deserve it. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for us. And you may go, okay, that's, that's great. I don't hear him. You ever heard him intercede for you? You may be like, I don't feel him interceding for me. And then I thought of this quote by Robert Murray McChain. Robert, Robert Murray McChain. If I knew Jesus was praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. Jesus is praying for me. He's praying for me. And so as you walk away this morning, you go into your afternoon and into this evening and start your work week. And when you step into moments in your, those lowly, like weak, dark moments, and you wanna give up, and there's all sorts of questions going through your mind, come back to this truth that Jesus is, he's interceding for you. He's praying for you right now, right now. Isn't that just like, to, can we like pause for a second, like take that in? Like what is Jesus doing right now? Well, he died, he rose, he's seated, he's seated because his work is finished and he's praying for me. He's praying for you. And I've wondered, but what's he praying? Like there's a lot of things we could say. I think he's praying Romans 8, 29, that I would be conformed, I'd be more like him. I wonder if he's often praying that I would have a soft heart, not a hard heart. I wonder if he's praying that I would be repentant, that I would confess my sin. And I think that the, there's been many times where I've confessed that I think my confession of sin to him is a result of him interceding for me, of him praying for me. And I remember one time I was sitting out on a dock, one of my favorite places to spend time with the Lord is, is out on this dock. And I had my journal and uh, the Lord just began to expose and reveal my sin that I needed to confess. And I'd been putting it off. And, and so I just, I wrote down, I wrote these words down, Lord, I'm sorry I was wrong, I sinned against you. And honestly, to my surprise, I heard a quick answer. Jonathan, I'm not against you. Jonathan, you're not guilty. And I started writing this down. And it was one of the most like, powerful moments I've had because I don't have moments with the Lord like this right here, him speaking so clearly. It was like my, I, my pen couldn't write fast enough. And he goes on to say, Jonathan, you're not guilty, you're not condemned, because I, I was condemning myself. Christ died, Christ rose, and over the next few moments, I continue to replay my sin. Yeah, but, and every time I wanted to replay to my, in my mind what I did, it was almost like the spirit was saying, hey, Christ died. And then a promise from John 6, Jonathan, he who comes to me, I will never cast out. And then I wrote this in response to the Lord. To hear you say not guilty is not what I expected. It almost seems too good to be true. It was like I was hearing it for the first time. I mean, don't you want moments like that? Where it almost feels like Christ died and rose yesterday? I, I, I mean, I've been in ministry for a little while now. It can, the cross can lose its weight in my life. You know what I'm saying? Is that true for you maybe this morning? where it's like, it doesn't seem to be as real as it once did. And on this particular day, it was like I was falling in love with Jesus again, and I almost felt like I was becoming a Christian again. I just lost my place in my notes, so give me a second. Oh, where was I? Hold on a second. 
This is awkward. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Back to the... Oh, yeah. uh, so as I was, I was journaling, I said, I, I wrote this back to the Lord. I said, I honestly expected for you to say to me, Jonathan, how could you? We've been here before. Haven't you learned your lesson? And that moment I realized that he is for me. And I think the Lord began to show me that I'm really good at preaching the gospel to students, but not very good at preaching it to myself. And as I sat there, I began to, after the confession and after this moment with the Lord, he began to bring songs to mind that I had been singing years prior, such as Before the Throne of God. Y'all know that song? Before the Throne of God? Oh, it's so good. If you don't know this song, you gotta learn this one. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, like what do you and I do when Satan does that? I'm just gonna try harder. I'll never do it again. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. No, when Satan tempts me to despair, this is why I began to sing out on the dock. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And then it just went on from one song to the next. It is well with my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I shall bear it no more. Man, this is like, I could go on. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. Why? Because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else will do. It satisfies your longings as nothing else will do. And so this is, this is good to come back to. We bring charges against ourselves. We condemn ourselves. But what's true? Yeah, Christ, Christ died. There's no condemnation. And for you this morning, you may say, yeah, but Jonathan, there's thoughts I have. There's thoughts I have that aren't right. Yeah, but okay, that, yes, you may have thoughts like that, but they put a crown of thorns on his head and Christ died and he rose and he is interceding for you and he now lives in you. And you may say, yeah, but I've backed away from the Lord. I reckon I've backed away from the Lord. Yeah, but they beat his back and he died and he rose and he's interceding for you right now. And he lives in you. And you may say, yeah, but there's thoughts inside of me. I recognize there's thoughts I have that aren't right. There's stuff inside of me. I have anger towards this person and bitterness towards them. What's, what's the word for you this morning? Christ died. He rose. He's seated. He's interceding for you. And you may say, I've confessed my sin, but I don't feel forgiven. I think you deal with your feelings by dealing with how God dealt with your guilt and you preach the gospel to yourself again and again and again. Well, last question, question four. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So let's just let's pause here for a moment. How would you answer this question? Is, maybe is there someone here this morning you think, man, something's gonna separate me from his love. And maybe you think when you hear this question, who will separate me from the love of, of, of Christ? You may say, God will. God will separate me from his love one day because I'm such a failure, because I, I just keep failing. And as a believer, you just, maybe you get down on yourself. I think here's a lie that Satan wants us to believe with this fourth question, who will separate us, is that my sin is too much, I will give up, or God's love will, um, God's love will run out. That either I'm just gonna, I'm gonna fail, and I'm gonna fail so much, he's gonna give up on me, and I'm just gonna like, take so much of his love that eventually he's just gonna stop loving me. And is that really true? Will God really separate me from his love? And what I love what Paul does here 
in verses 35 to 39 is he answers this one question in 17 different ways. I think to, for this truth to really sink in. And look what he says. So who will separate me from love of Christ? He says this. So ten, uh, sorry, seven things in verse 35. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? He goes on to say, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I'm convinced. So he's, he's answering, he's going through all these, this list of basically possible separators. Will these things separate you from love of Christ? And he goes on. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the great truth he comes to. My, that, that, oh gosh, okay, what happened? No one and nothing will separate me from the love of God, right? Write that down. It'll come up in a second. There we go. All right. No one and nothing will separate me from, from the love of Christ. Again, one question, but he goes to, through 17 different possible separators, and he's like, will this, will this, will this, will this? Y'all, nothing se- separate, separates me from his love if I'm one who has trusted in him and if I'm in Christ. And as I've wrestled through this question, I'm reminded of Romans 5, 8, that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me, that he, he's poured his love into my heart, and so questions I've written to myself in relation, in relation to this fourth question, why would he give his spirit only to later down the road take his spirit from me? Why would he redeem me to leave me? Why would he forgive me only one day later down to forsake me? Why would he accept me only to say one day I want to reject you? If he accepted me, think about this. If he accepted me in light of my past sin, why would he now reject me in light of my current struggle with sin or because of my future sin? I think sometimes we think if I keep on sinning, he's just gonna leave me. But what's the promise in John 6? He who comes to me, I will never cast out. Nothing will separate me from his love. And Paul's convinced of this. And I love how he says that word, I am convinced of this or I'm sure of this or I'm confident of this. And so as we leave this morning, you may not be sure of what a particular outcome will be, but you can be sure of this. You can be sure that nothing separates you from his love. There's no condemnation, no charges to be brought against you, and he is for you. You can be confident of this. Great confidence for the believers this morning. Um, But I recognize maybe for some of you in this room, maybe uh, you don't have this confidence And you don't have this confidence and this morning hasn't been very encouraging for you because you've never trusted in Christ. And I would just say to you, man, at 21, God drew me to himself and maybe that's what he's doing in your life today. That these questions are for one who has trusted in Jesus and you can leave this morning and today you can have great confidence. But you only have confidence when you look away from yourself and when you look to a a savior who died on your behalf who demonstrated his love for what he did for you on the cross. And so I would say to you, man, look to Jesus. And I think really for all of us, we answer these four questions wrongly when we look to ourselves instead of looking to Jesus. When we look to Jesus, I think there's confidence. I think we walk away with Romans with words like, thank you, Father, for the victory. I'm gonna have the worship team come up and we're gonna respond with a song. 
But as you think back to these four questions, remember? The, the goal this morning was, I want to encourage you. And I think these four questions, not just the questions, but it's the answers that we are to repeat aloud and say, uh, say what is true. I think that there's an encouragement there. I think for me, Romans 8, um, I think has given me a lot of security and hope um, that, uh, for what he's done for me. And as I have thought about this chapter, uh, as I said at the beginning, Romans 8 has become a chapter that I love. And if you take Romans 8 from me, man, I'm a, I'm a pretty sad dude. Like, I, I think for all believers, Romans 8, without, without Romans 8, or without chapters like this in Scripture, I think there's only despair. But I think with Romans 8, there's joy and there's great encouragement, right? And so what I want to do now is well, I just want to finish this morning by doing for you what I have to do for myself on a daily basis. And so I want us to stand and I want us to hear the word of, of, hear the, word of the Lord and then want us to respond to what God has said. So let's just hear Romans 8 again. So we know how it ends. We know how it starts with no condemnation and just think about what Paul says about how we've been set free. And these truths are of great encouragement to us. And Paul says this in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, the spirit of, um, I just forgot the next verse, so I'm just gonna move on. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and as daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father, for the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children that heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then when I think about this next verse, I think about Revelation. So think back to the last seven weeks. For I consider um, that the sufferings of this present time don't compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes on to say that famous verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things. There's a lot of things you don't know right now as you leave this morning, 
But Paul says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and oh yeah, and is interceding for us, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long and we were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And all these things, not after these things, not around these things, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, I'm confident of this, man. I'm sure of this that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor my struggle with sin, nor your struggle with sin, nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we can pray for you, help you in any way, please make sure you see us in guest services or we have men and women available between auditoriums that are there to pray with you. Uh, let's go in the power of the Spirit and the hope that we find there. All right, God bless.